When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Food. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today's discussion takes us to the shores of the Baltic Sea to learn more about the cuisines and culture of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, three nations known collectively as the Baltic states. But to lump these three countries together is to do their individual cultures a grave disservice. Each has its own national flavors and traditions, and each national cuisine is currently enjoying a lively renaissance and renewed interest in traditional dishes. And there's no better guide to this corner of the European Union than my guest today, London-based food writer and storyteller cook Zuza Zak, who is here to discuss her new cookbook, Amber and Rye, A Baltic Food Journey. Filled with history, stories, marvelously evocative photography of people, places, and plates, and of course, intriguing and delicious recipes, Amber and Rye is the perfect introduction to the magnificent cuisine of the three individual Baltic states. And I'm so delighted that Zuza was able to join us today. Zuza, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor to be here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you. Now, before we dive into the book, which is coming out in the United States, I think, um, in September, I wonder if we could begin with a bit of background. Uh, you describe yourself as a storyteller cook. I love this um, this this title. And having read both your books, um, I think this is spot on. You weave all kinds of history, culture, and personal anecdote into your discussions of cuisine. I wonder if you could tell us how you found your way into food writing. Yes, I was I was thinking about that last night. Where did it all start? <laughs> well, <laughs> um and it started long before the book came out. I mean, um of course food was always a big part of my life and a way which I connected with my homeland, with Poland. And yet food writing is its own thing really, isn't it? And there are so many ways of approaching it. And um, when I was in my 20s, my friend, who was also a big foodie, he was Chinese and he was an amazing cook, and he gave me Claudia Roden's um, new book of Middle Eastern food. 
Um, and it doesn't that book doesn't have any pictures in it or anything like that, but it's very anthropological and it talks about the movement of peoples and how the food traveled from place to place. And um and really after reading that book, my eyes opened to a whole new way of thinking about food and culture. And um it was ten years before I published my first book. Well, that's a one. That's a wonderful book, and I remember reading that myself when I was um, first living in Russia and just beginning to think about the the sort of the um, the origins of of the cuisine that I was just discovering. You you wrote about um, Poland, which is your home country, in your first book. Can you share the motivation and and inspiration behind looking now at the Baltic countries? Absolutely. Um, so after Polska, it took me a little while to publish another book. I was really looking for, you know, that inspiration you have to write a book, the, the inspiration that you need to, you know, start on such a big endeavor. And um, I've always been interested in Vilnius because that's where my grandma was from. And she talked about Vilnius endlessly in my childhood. So I was always interested um, in in visiting Lithuania and in just sort of seeing what's going on in that part of the world. And when I started delving into it a little bit, I saw that they were having a foodie renaissance, a bit like what was going on in Poland at the moment, which I find so exciting. It's kind of, um, I feel like it's the communist hangover is finally over and we are <laughs> and we are finally kind of rediscovering what it is that makes us us. And the same thing is happening in the Baltic states. So I was very excited to, to discover that. And um, yes, some uh, journalists even called it the new Nordic because that's also what happened with Scandinavia and the Baltic states are also influenced by Scandinavia. Um. So that was the first kind of thing that piqued my interest. But then, um, as I was researching the Baltic states, um, my dad had a DNA test and discovered that he was half Baltic, which ah. seems surprising because my grandma was <laughs> from Lithuania, and yet she always said she was from a Polish family. Uh-huh. Uh, so that did surprise us. And... Uh, when I dug into that a little bit, I learned that some people who were actually genetically Lithuanian uh, felt Polish. And this is clearly how um, how my grandma felt about her identity. Um, and is this is this from the, the Polish-Lithuanian, uh, is, is it, it's the Commonwealth, isn't it, um, exactly. in the Middle Ages? So I suppose there's a lot of genetic uh, crossover. Uh, correct. So basically, Poland and Lithuania, they always had very strong ties. And yet, um, they actually became one country for over 200 years. And um, until the partitions, and then they both ceased to exist. So <laughs> there's a lot of shared history there. And, and yes, it's just a matter of identity. I guess some people felt more Lithuanian, and some people felt Polish. It, it turns out that the Polish was actually the the main language for the aristocracy there, even if they mm -hmm. were Lithuanian for a while. Right. And and so and when did you decide to expand from Lithuania out to Estonia and Latvia as well? Well that felt like a natural progression because uh, since World War One <clears throat> they are known as the Baltic states. Of course after that they lost their independence again and uh, the history is very complicated. And yet um, I feel that even though they uh, preserve their own local traditions um, 
and regional differences, uh, they they are happy to be known as the Baltic states. You know, I think there's strength in numbers. And absolutely, after everything that's happened in history, I think they feel stronger and more confident as the Baltic states. And there is a lot of shared, um, not only history, but also ingredients and flavors and mentality. Right. And let's talk a little bit about the um, uh, title of the book, because rye is, is, I think, common to all three of the of the countries. One can't escape rye in all of its forms in the Baltic. But I was intrigued by amber because um, I, I we can't eat amber as far as I know. But uh, then I came to this lovely section um, in the part on Lithuania in your book where you write so movingly about your grandmother and her longing to return to the villainous of her youth. And it, it struck me that amber is a great um, way to preserve something. And was it was it that aspect of it that fits so well into the title of your book? Oh, you know, that's a beautiful and very poetic way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I wish it was. Well, it is now. <laughs> it is now. It is now. Let's say yes to that one because that is, it was such a beautiful way of looking at it. And yes, that's also true. Yeah. Um, it is a way of preserving, of course. Um, with rye, um, I felt that life was. Um, it was rye is a very life giving crop, and that grows really well in those kind of countries. So with rye, it was kind of like life and the practical side. Um, and then with amber, uh, there is like a, definitely a poetic element to amber. It felt, felt like that was the sort of story element of the book in a way, because you have the rye, which is the food, and then the amber, which has kind of been there since the beginning of time, uh, or since the beginning of humanity anyway. And, um, and it's had all these stories, you know, um, which I write about at the back of the book uh, with the amber trail, you know, from from the humans who first found it on the beach to the Greeks and the Roman empires um, and, and then the Teutonic order and how amber was used and seen. And it's so kind of, um, it feels like it's a way of putting these countries in a kind of greater relevance, giving them a giving them a sort of a, a meaning within history that isn't just what we know. It's this kind of beautiful object, and if you touch amber, it sort of it warms when you touch mm. it. It's got a very kind of tactile, and there is like almost like a spiritual aspect to it. It feels like it. It feels like you're connected to it. Apparently, gives off some kind of oil. As That's well, right. some people found, and some even took it as medicine in the past. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I felt there was sort of like, a, yeah, a deeper kind of element there that I wanted to tie in to the Baltic states. Well, I think it's a perfect title for for your book, which combines you know cuisine and tradition and and the sort of the the heart of of these three countries. I'm going to ask you to put your history hat on, your historian hat on now, Zuzu, because I know that when I moved to Riga and I said, "Oh, I'm I'm moving to Riga," uh, I got a lot of quizzical looks from friends, particularly in the United States. Um, who were a little bit embarrassed to ask where Riga was. Um, and um, so I, I think for the benefit of, of our listeners, I'd love you to walk us through each of these three countries um, and kind of give us like a potted history of each. Uh, they share so much, but also help us understand how, how distinct they are. 
It's a, it's a tall order, I know. It's, it's a tall order to do it in <laughs> such a small kind of. <laughs> I, will, I will do my best. Okay. <laughs> and any historians, well, of course, forgive for me listeners, for any if, discrepancies. <laughs> I, but I also want to encourage listeners to get the book because you do it so beautifully in the book. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean by that because. Um, actually here on the underground in London, I saw posters that were um, advertising Vilnius and it was the lost city of Atlantis underwater. <laughs> 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 and, the, and the line was Vilnius, amazing, wherever it is. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> not untrue. Same. That's not untrue. <laughs> So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know. It does feel like it's off the beaten track. And yet all three cities are world UNESCO, world heritage sites. So uh, you can sort of, so if you know, you know, you know, you have Tallinn with its amazing old town, which is sort of the biggest one I've ever been to on up on a hill um, with some beautiful uh, medieval walls surrounding it. And a lot of them are still completely intact. Um, and then you have the kind of pockets of uh, hip areas, you know, because it feels like Estonia is kind of somewhere in between the past and the present. You know, you've got the the beautiful history there as well, but then it feels very forward thinking. I think it's where Skype was invented. And mm. it's, um, yeah, so it's kind of like you, you have 4G everywhere you go. In the middle of the forest in Estonia, you'll have 4G. So it's very forward thinking. And yet it's got this... Um, amazing kind of history everywhere as well. And then the beautiful nature, of course. And I write about Tallinn uh, in the book, and I write about Tartu, which is a kind of university town, uh, university town, where um, a lot of people end up because it's got the sort of the biggest university and everything. And it's quite it got kind of relaxed, bohemian feel to it. I went to a food festival there, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, and then, of course, we have Riga, which is, as you know, is absolutely stunning. You've got, mm. it's much bigger than Tallinn. It's kind of the biggest and most kind of vibrant place I think we we went to because, I mean, as soon as you drove into Riga, we were kind of shell-shocked because the driving is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fast-paced city. I don't know if that's how you saw it or I, I moved there from Moscow so it seemed a little sleepy to me really <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I um, think Estonian countryside maybe that's but I, I do I do think it's I do think it's very vibrant and dynamic and of course the food scene there is astonishingly fabulous I mean the the just the central market is amazing absolutely and then there's another kind of trendy market as well where uh, you know you have house music and kind of you know, uh-huh. kind of young people go as well and there's just there's a lot going on there and then you have the beautiful old town the UNESCO World Heritage Site and then you also have obviously the uh, the Art Nouveau mm-hmm. buildings which are beautiful as well which is it's known for um, and then if you go to Vilnius which is also one of my favorite places I mean I fell in love with Vilnius immediately it's when you drive in, you feel like you're driving in somewhere like Rome because you have the Baroque architecture that's so grand. And yet, when you're walking around it, it's got a very villagey kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's uh, you know it's got all these little hill, rolling hills and that's oh, gorgeous. Yeah, and the stream and the ducks waddling about, and then you have these <laughs> beautiful Baroque churches. Some of them are completely renewed because there was a big movement to renew everything. But then on the outskirts, you sort of see some kind of crumbling, which which has got a certain kind of you know glamour to it as well, faded glamour to it as well. Um, and I found the same about um, Lithuania's second city, Kaunas. Mm-hmm. as well which also there's that sort of faded glamour aspect to it it's a little bit raw but then it's got this very vibrant street art scene as well so I think in terms of all the Baltic states I would say it's somewhere between the Slavic countries and Scandinavia with its own kind of Baltic regional spirit as well and mm-hmm. Those influences have been felt throughout time. For example, before the Baltic states were the Baltic states, in the Middle Ages, you had the Hanseatic League, for example, which was, um, you know, a trading alliance for which was all kind of the the Baltic, um, many Baltic cities, but also it stretched up towards Sweden and towards the Netherlands, and it included some Polish cities as well. So you also had always had that trade between the countries. So that influence was kind of being felt, you know, and you have all the herrings that you have in Sweden. <laughs> that's very common in the Baltic countries. Um, so there was a kind of a lot of mixing mixing um, throughout history, as, as there tends to be, and food really is a reflection of that, um, I guess, in any country. Um, and then in terms of the Baltic countries, in terms of the history, I would say Lithuania and Poland obviously have a lot of shared history because they had the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And then you had the Baltic Germans who um, who were the ruling classes in a lot of Latvia and Estonia as well. Mm-hmm. So you had that kind of a uh, German influence there as well. And, you know, and a lot of the Bolts were actually serfs so that, you know, they really had to fight for their rights and their language and things like that um, throughout time. And, and then of course, when they became the Baltic States after that, we all know what happened in the beginning mm. of the 20th century. We had the Soviets and the Nazis, and uh, and they had to go through a lot of hard times until really until the late 80s. And then I would say the 90s were completely wild in those countries as well, um, as in Poland, because after communism, it's very difficult to get a system in place that works. But finally, I feel like they have they have done that in different ways in different countries and they're, they're really starting to shine. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so I think we'll soon see ad- advertisements for, for, you know, beautiful Latvia, you know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> it I want to ask, while, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. <laughs> Although I, I, I selfishly want to keep it kind of a secret because it is, it is so lovely to be there um, and, and kind of just enjoy the, uh, it's very not it seems to me very natural it's not terribly touristy um in these places and I think that's really refreshing oh it's you know I know exactly how you feel when I was in Kaunas uh, in the second city of Lithuania I mean you know there's not many people that go to Kaunas I mean even Vilnius no one knows where it is but Kaunas but actually it's one of the European uh, cities of culture Uh Uh, it's going to be in 2022 so I think things are going to change Oh, good. And good. you can see it's all being kind of modernized. And yet, 
you know, all the trams at the moment are covered in street art. Each tram, each one of the old trams is like a work of art. And now oh, it's going to be replaced by new trams, mm. <laughs> which are, you know, very modern, I'm sure very comfortable, but it's, it's going to change. It's going to lose a little something, isn't it? Yeah. I want to ask you um, about your process of writing this book. Um, it, how much research went into this before you took your epic journey uh, to the three, the three Baltic states? And how did you go about doing that research? Did you talk to people or were you holed up in libraries? Um, what, was, what was your process? Um, well, I always head to the library first. I, mean, <laughs> I spent so, so much time in libraries. Uh, with my first book, it was the British Library. This time, yes, also the British Library because I love that building. But I'm now doing a PhD at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, which is a part of UCL. And they have a wonderful library, which is absolutely perfect if you're researching any kind of Eastern European country. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a lot of research in the libraries, but also about, um, I think, three years ago now, there was a big move to translate a lot of uh, Baltic literature. And so I just bought lots of books online as well, um, just Baltic literature, because I wanted to read up on it and to kind of... Um, get a feeling of kind of where, you know, modern culture is at now, you know, and how it got there. So uh, a lot of reading, first of all. And then, of course, I start speaking to people that have been to those countries or are from those countries. And you start sort of getting your recommendations and um, making kind of a loose plan before you go on your, on your journey. And then the journey itself, you know, it feels like it takes on a life of its own in a way because mm -hmm. you know, we only had loose plans and yet we just met the right people at the right time and saw the right things. For example, after I left Tallinn on the way to the Estonian countryside, I was thinking, oh gosh, I should have stayed in Tallinn for longer because this is where it's all going on. But I arrived in the middle of a forest, in the middle of nowhere, and I found out that that, that evening, literally in about an hour, all the local food producers and um, yeah, and cafes and galleries were opening the doors and having an open, um, like a house cafe. Oh, right? fantastic! Yeah, so very serendipitous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah, and this is in the middle of nowhere, so we were just driving from village to village, and everywhere people were sort of opening their homes and oh, singing amazing. folk music and making their favorite dishes. And, you know, I learned so much. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. Now, do you speak any of the Baltic languages? I know you speak Polish and obviously English. What other languages do you speak? Um, well, a little bit of French. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't speak any of the So Baltic. you're relying on the, the Baltic propensity to speak really good English. Which they do, actually. They yeah. do. <laughs> a bit like Scandinavia, yeah, they really do. Uh, well, especially the younger generations. Um but um, yes, yeah, so the, all the languages, all the Baltic languages are completely different, actually. Estonian right. is kind of like a bit like Finnish. It's very complicated. <clears throat> it's not Slavic at all. Um, Lithuanian and Latvian are closer to one another, a bit more Slavic. And yet uh, Lithuanian is an ancient language, I think, as mm. old as Sanskrit. And I love the sound of it. And I found out that my grandma spoke fluent Lithuanian, which I didn't know, actually. Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, there's, and, uh, yeah. I wish I did know a little bit of Lithuanian because I, I've really kind of, the sound of it is just sort of. It's very musical in a way, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, never too late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> never too late. And now I want our listeners to know um, that part of so much of the book um, you describe ha- having, you had a research assistant along with you, which is your three-year-old. Um, and I wonder what it's like. It's very temperamental research assistant. Yeah, to be, to be um, traveling with, with a three-year-old and trying to, to you know, absorb all of this yeah. information. Um, it, it was not easy, but uh, I'm really glad we did it because oh, good. I think for her, even though she doesn't remember a lot of it, I still feel that on some level it opens her up and it teaches her something on a deeper level. Um, the process itself was not easy because um, her father and I were both working. Um, my partner was um, taking the photo- doing the photography for the book. So that's why we have lots of beautiful travel photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, trying to write things down and research, and, you know, writing down everything we were eating and uh, the atmosphere. So I don't forget because it's so easy just to focus on the child when you're somewhere. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so sometimes I'll just have to run off for an hour and just be like, okay, stop the photography. Just look after her so I can just get the atmosphere. What, what's going oh. on here <laughs> in the outer world? But it was so wonderful. And now after the whole lockdown, I mean, this was the last time I went anywhere further away for a longer trip. So I I think I look at it through rose-tinted glasses now because despite kind of all the meltdowns and all the difficulty, it was just such a magical trip. Oh, I'm so glad because it it looks very bucolic and idyllic and wonderful. But you know, having had a three year old myself uh, in tow, I, I know it's I know it can be really challenging, um, but very delightful. Let's let's jump into the book now, Susan, because I feel like I feel like um, you know I I want to talk uh, so much about the food, um, which is such a big part of the book. And I want to start by uh, something you said earlier that that these these Baltic cuisines kind of slot between New Nordic, the sort of the the revolution in Scandinavian cuisine, and Slavic Eastern European. And I wonder if for our listeners you could kind of expand on that idea. Uh, I think I touched on it before with sort of the Hanseatic League mm. and how uh, these countries around the Baltic all kind of influenced one another and uh, throughout history. So I think um, there's definitely an element of that there. Um, And I think there are those two elements for sure, just to help people understand the the kind of broader spectrum. And yet there is something very Baltic, which I really wanted to focus on in the book as well, all the kind of uh, local traditions that aren't known in any other country. For example, the hemp butter, yeah mm. or the camera in Estonia I haven't come across that anywhere else hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Um, can you can you describe that a little bit in more detail? Absolutely. Um, it's so so delicious. Ham <laughs> <laughs> is one of my favorite things, and so is Latvian hemp butter for that um, for that matter. So kama uh, is a mixture of grains like a rye, barley, could be oats. Uh, often they put peas in there as well. I've done two versions in my book because I did a sort of simplified version without the peas. And then I did kind of a more traditional version with the peas as well. But then obviously you have to cook the peas for a little bit. Um, and then uh, the grains are kind of, um, say, soaked. Some people might cook them for a little bit. And then they are roasted. So mm-hmm. they have this wonderful multi-flavor to them. And then they're ground up into a flour. But it's not a flour you really cook with. It's uh, They put this flour in kefir for example, maybe with a little bit of honey or some salt, if they like it salty, um, for kind of a quick snack or some people just have it for breakfast. Um, so I loved experimenting with that. They often put it in sweet desserts nowadays as well. That's like the modern um, Baltic element to it, you know, in all the kind of fancy restaurants, you'll find um, kama in the desserts because it's such an Estonian thing. Someone described this to me as the most Estonian food. <laughs> the most Estonian thing ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's 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 everywhere you go in Estonia they have it, and it's and at first it's very confusing what it what it actually is. But it, it has you're right. The multi flavor is very specific. Yeah, yeah, it's that multi flavor. So I, I I made it into a kind of like a easy ice cream, and I think that works really well. And and and, and there's a breakfast thing as well. Uh-huh. Um which is what they do, but then I sort of made it a little bit more, a little bit more me. And then you have uh, what starts the book, which is the Latvian hemp butter, which is kind of the most traditional Latvian thing, which has been used for centuries um, because it's, it preserves really well. So it's uh, toasted and then uh, ground up uh, hemp seeds, and you can use a little bit of hemp oil as well in there. If you don't have hemp oil, just any kind of mild oil would do. Um, sometimes you don't even need oil. It kind of depends on how uh, moist they are. But I, I always add a little bit and a little bit of salt. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a naturally vegan product. Um, and I traveled with this hemp butter. Someone gave it to me in Riga. And I traveled throughout the whole Baltics with it for about over three weeks and bought it at home. Nothing happened. Using it, and <laughs> using it at home. So it does, you know, without a fridge, it does preserve really well. You can, of course, mix it with a little bit of butter as well if you want to do that. But I quite like it in its natural state on toast with some either condensed milk or some honey or something like that. 
Um, but then I also loved experimenting with it as well. So I made hemp butter cookies and things like that with it. Well, and it, and it comes through in the book. It beautifully photographed, by the way. Oh, um, just looks so 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 appealing, so um, delicious. Oh, that's Ola. Ola, I had a lovely team working for me. Uh, my Polish friend Ola was the photographer, and uh, and her team were absolutely fantastic. I feel like there's a real warmth the photos yes it feels like you could just sit down and, and kind of enjoy it's not very staged it yeah. seems very natural yeah yeah now the the structure of the book follows the conventional kind of soup to nuts but um you you i think had a wonderful way of of um putting in really interesting essays about the times in that you spent in the in the major cities did the structure occur to you naturally or did that sort of come together once you had everything done or how, how did you go about crafting the book? Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, um, I guess the, the most obvious thing would be to go, Oh, this is, this is Lithuanian food. This is Latvian food. This is Estonian food. Um, but I guess I wanted to make it more organic in a way, in a way, uh, the way that um, things aren't so strictly divided. You have those regional products, but a lot of the, ingredients that the uh, Baltic states use they have in common the curd cheeses the rye the barley uh, you know the kasha gritana which is the buckwheat groats and the kvass and birch things like this so so I thought it was more organic and more natural to uh, sort of divide it by breakfast lunch dinner and then delve into all the specifics of the countries uh, as I go along. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did have that structure in mind from the beginning uh, because that just felt like the most natural structure to me. And then, um, and then things kind of just naturally slotted into that. I would have changed it if it didn't work, but it felt like it worked really well as I wrote the book. And, and the recipes in the book, um, You've put your own kind of spin on a number of classics and traditional dishes. And I wonder if, if you would share with us how you go about doing that. How do you make a, how do you discover something and then make it your own? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it's different for every recipe in a way. So, for example, um, something like, let me just have a little think. Okay. So, Yes. So, for example, some recipes I don't change at all. Like, um, I have uh, Greta's Medutis honey layer cake, who's, which is from Greta, mm -hmm. uh, a Lithuanian. And actually, I do have my own way of making it at home without the soured cream. I use the mascarpone, which she uses mm -hmm. as a topping between the layers. <laughs> I really like doing that. However, I... Changed, um, I went against changing it in the book. I wanted to keep it as her recipe mm -hmm. um, in the book. So sometimes I'm very true to what I'm given, um, as in that case. Other times I have to change things a little bit. For example, Madara's little fish bake. Oh, gosh, I had such a problem with the little fish because... <laughs> Um, they weren't, uh, the sprats weren't in season and, mm -hmm. uh, gosh, it's, it's just different, you know, fish are different in each country 
And, you know, I tried it with frozen fish. I tried it with something else and it just did not work. And I contacted Madara and I said, I really want to have this recipe in there, but I'm having problems. She said, why don't you just try a tinned anchovies? And I did that. I would never thought of that myself. It worked perfectly. So, mm-hmm. so that was just a little change. And then, of course, something like the Latvian hemp butter, which I talked about. Of course, that recipe I didn't touch. It's an ancient Latvian recipe. You have to start with the basic. And then once I had that, I went on to make it my own. So, for example, I made the hemp butter cookies with it because it just works so well. And I, I literally make those cookies all the time now and um, give them to everyone as a gift because it's such a unique flavor. People that don't mm. even like sweet things like them. And um, it's a way of introducing that flavor um, to people's palate in a kind of really easy way. Mm-hmm. So, and, and tell me, this, do you have a favorite of, of all these recipes or is that like asking which of your children you prefer? Yeah, it would be very difficult <laughs> to choose a favorite. I mean... <laughs> Uh, there are some very special rep- recipes to me that are close to my heart. For example, the plum butter, you know, the simplest recipe. Mm. And yet this is where the journey started. It was in my grandma's um, cupboard. She had this big mahogany cupboard with all these sort of silk scarves and leather gloves and amber necklaces in it. And under it, she had um, rows and rows of plum butter. Uh-huh. And uh, and I would always take one out and open it up, and she would always test it to see if it was okay. And uh, this is my Lithuanian grandma's kind of home, and this is where really—I mean, I didn't know that was starting then, but that's where that's what kind of ignited that spark for the Baltic mm-hmm. States for me. So that's a very special recipe. And then, and then you just have things that you know. I learned along the way, like the kama and the hemp butter, which which I'm now addicted to. So, uh-huh. yeah. So, I mean, if, if it was what I cook the most, it would definitely be those cookies <laughs> all the time. They do sound delicious. I, I have I've, I haven't tried that recipe, but I'm it's definitely in in on my list of ones that I want to try. Oh, I hope you um, do. Oh, I will do. Um, I want to touch on something else that comes through in the book very um, very much, which is the pagan beliefs that you discover, mm-hmm. particularly in Lithuania, I think. Um, there are a lot of different um, ethnic cultures in the Baltic states, aside from you know traditional Latvian, Lithuanian. Mm-hmm. Jewish culture was very strong before World War II, and it just you know was just destroyed. Mm-hmm. What other? What are some of the culinary influences that are outside the Baltic um, that you discovered while you were there? That were sorry, that were outside the Baltic. That that are not um, traditionally Latvian. I'm thinking of Jewish, uh, maybe Central Asian. Um, some of those that are kind of ancillary. Um, well, that's a little bit of a difficult one because it's so mixed up. You know, it's very difficult uh, to kind of um, put your finger on it. But first of all, um, let me address the pagan beliefs. Yeah. Um, because you're absolutely right, pagan beliefs were so strong and are still very strongly felt in all three countries. And I think this is one of the things that actually ties the Baltic states together. It's a very deep connection to nature, which I feel like comes from their inherent pagan beliefs, which were really attacked by the Teutonic Knights, especially in Estonia and Latvia, 
the Teutonic Knights were really brutal, and they it was the, it was the Crusades, basically. Um, but actually, Lithuania too, because the first um, big ruler of Lithuania invited all the different cultures to settle on Lithuanian land as long as they respected Lithuanian pagan beliefs, excluding the Teutonic Knights because they were so brutal and so hated throughout the whole area. Um, so, so I think that's something that actually ties them together. And even though maybe on the outside, you know, especially Lithuania, Lithuania is very um, Christian now, very Catholic, just as Poland, because uh, through the marriage of um, the Polish queen and the pagan Lithuanian king, uh, Lithuania took on Christianity willingly, uh, which kind of helped against the Teutonic Knights. So even on the outside, you have the Christianity. Um, I feel like on the inside, you still have certain pagan rituals and um, and just that kind of connection that that's very pagan. And in Estonia, actually, uh, most people think feel that they don't have a religion, and yet they also feel that trees do have souls. Mm. that's a very <laughs> yeah that's a very strong belief in Estonia and when I mentioned it at a dinner party of my Latvian friends um you know they, that's exactly what they said they said of course they do <laughs> <laughs> that's why there's trees in all the cemeteries right yeah so the and I love the way in the some of the, some of the things that I've seen um, in the Baltic states, they're they're kind of reviving these traditional festivals that have pagan origins, and really getting into um, those those kind of things, those traditions and those holidays and and the food that goes with it. It's really delightful to see. Absolutely, I think it's wonderful to have that revival. And right now, this is what's wonderful. We have freedom, and they have freedom. Mm. And they can express and explore all those old ways, which uh, which are part of their being. Really, there's no mm-hmm. need to kind of hide who they are anymore. They can talk their language, explore the food, explore their old traditions. They don't have to be anything. So that's really wonderful at the moment. And yes, those countries were very cosmopolitan before the Second World War. At Vilnius, my grandma talks about as being very uh, kind, open, cosmopolitan place. So it was a, a huge tragedy uh, what happened there, not only for the people, but for the culture as well. Um, when it comes to the food, I think it's difficult to um, to take apart what influences come from where. I once talked to a, a Jewish restaurateur and I was saying, gosh, we have a lot of influences in Poland from Jewish food. And he said, I think it's the other way around, actually. I think mm. Jewish people took influences also from Polish uh, food and what was there and the ingredients. So it's it's difficult to say what came from where. Um, mm-hmm. I have latkes, uh, latka in the book, yeah. latsky. I call them by that just because that's what they're known as in the world. Um uh, but I, I combine them with sausage, which, uh, you know, <laughs> like, like that's strange if it's a Jewish thing. Right. But I'm like, it's, uh, I'm just calling them that because, yes, it, it is a Jewish thing. And it's, and it's from, that, from those places as well. I think mm-hmm. it, it's very difficult to divide, divide the, and separate the, the two. And I wonder um, if you sense any 
remaining vin- like a like a sort of veneer from the Soviet culinary um, eras um, in the three states. I sometimes pick up a tiny bit of nostalgia for it. It's not it's not very strong, um, but I think it's there. I think you're absolutely right. It is there. It's in the younger generations that don't remember it, of course, mm. because. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you experience it you're not going to want to go back to that and yet it's a um it's a reinterpretation i think and it's a an absorbing of that part of history you know mm. i remember in poland there was a time when they wanted to knock down the palace of culture because it was gifted to poland from uh, moscow or uh, you know and, mm-hmm. and there was a moment when people, some people wanted to tear it down and there was a massive outcry. And I was so appalled at this history being destroyed because you can't, you don't want to destroy history. It's, mm-hmm. It happened. You need to uh, absorb it and learn from it. And, and yeah, that also involves the food. So there are some really fun Soviet classics, but, you know, were they invented by the Soviets? Probably not. They came from somewhere else, but they were kind of, you know, used to kind of symbolize so, so right. at one point and then and now they're being reimagined again. Yeah. Right. And that's I think that's very healthy. Um because yeah. food is such an enduring part of tradition and history and um yeah. and it one one thing I do I do find about Russia is that it's it can be very politically uh, against a, a region. Mm-hmm. But it absorbs its food with no hesitation. So it's very Russia is very ecumenical about um, you know it it cannot have New Year's Eve without Latvian sprats, um, but it has a <laughs> tense relationship with Latvia <laughs> politically. Well, I think it probably sort of <laughs> I think there's an element of like yes you're I mean I used to have a Russian friend and he used to talk about Poland like because he used to know it annoyed me like. Our little brothers, yes, yes. Right, our little Slavic (laughs) brothers. You're just part of us, you know. (laughs) You just don't know it. You're just rebelling. And you you will be again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's not necessary to rebel. You know, you'll come back. (laughs) Right. I don't think so. Um, Yeah. And finally, um, because our time is is coming to an end, but I I want to ask you what surprised and delighted you um, as you researched and wrote, wrote this wonderful book. Um, what well, surprised and delighted me, gosh, there were so many things. I think it was the synchronicity of the journey itself. And I strongly believe that it's because I was meant to be writing that book. You know, everything that happened felt like it was the book revealing itself to me. So, the, for example, the house cafes in Estonia, I didn't know anything about them when when I went, and yet I came across them in three different places. Um, and will you describe will you describe what that is? Because I'm not sure um, people will have encountered that in other parts of the world. I think it's very uniquely Estonian. It's it's wonderful. So people, um, just ordinary people, open their homes. And there's always some kind of a sign, or maybe there's some kind of like a wider festival that can be a part of, or the communities just kind of decide it themselves. There's a wonderful sense of community there, like even in the countryside with all the villages and things, um, which apparently took a while because after communism, everything was so organized. And then um, the Estonians were telling me it took a while to organize themselves into a sense of actually being able to do stuff like this. 
Um, so they come together and they, and whoever wants to opens up their house and all their neighbors come round. Uh, any kind of tourist, everyone is welcome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for them, I think it, it's, it's a big treat having people from another country come round because, you know, they're showing off all their favorite dishes and they're selling things. For example, they could be selling sprats. There could be another store selling something else or it could be just uh, it's it's organized in various ways because there could be like a gallery, for example, um, like a local gallery that's opened up. And then you have sort of a concert and various different people selling different things, local blackberry wine, someone else selling their favorite cake, or it could just be someone's home. And then they just prepare a few things that they want to kind of show off. And it's each home is different. Each place that you go to is completely different. You could be at a farm, then you could be at a gallery, and then just at someone's house. And everyone's very welcoming and wants to show you what they cook, which is all their produce that they produce. So, Oh, that, sound, that just sounds delightful. That was absolutely wonderful. It was my favorite thing completely, because there's one thing going to a restaurant, and it's another thing going to someone's home. Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. so I found uh, the Baltic people so hospitable anyway but in Estonia I literally managed to visit huge amounts of homes of people I didn't even know because they were just you know there was some balloons sticking up outside and I was like oh let's go in there in we go Oh, that just sounds really fun. Yeah. Um, now, Susan, what's what's next for you? Um, having conquered the Baltic states, um, yeah. where are you off to next? Um, I'm back off to my homeland again. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I have two books in the pipeline, actually. Uh, one of them I've literally just signed the deal for, so I can't talk about as yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one I haven't quite revealed yet, so I'm going to be a little bit enigmatic and mysterious about it. But I will tell you that today I am making a pierogi. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I hope that when you can be less enigmatic, you might come back and, and tell us about the new books. I would absolutely love that. Oh, that would be great. Um, This has been such a fascinating discussion, and I know that listeners will enjoy uh, getting their hands on Amber and Rye. It's a beautiful book filled with lovely photographs and really fantastic recipes, and it's it's also a great read. Um, So it's been wonderful having you on to talk more about the Baltic states. Before I let you go, could you tell listeners where they can find you in the um, internet and, and where to um, follow you on social media? Absolutely. I would say Instagram is my biggest place. I'm there all the time. I find the community just wonderful and nourishing. And I'm at Zuza Zach Cooks. And uh, my book is out in early September with Interlink in the US. Mm-hmm. And it'll be available wherever great books are sold. Well, thank you, Zuza, for joining me today. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. I'll be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Thank you for listening.